You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermons online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Glad our visitors have come and we've been able to reacquaint ourselves with them and we appreciate you being here. Uh, For all of us, we'll uh, be studying today as we did announce and uh, advertise on uh, our Back to Basics series. We do that the first Sunday of each month and we look at the basic things of the Christian faith and today will be our sixth lesson in that. We've tried to proceed in some sort of a logical arrangement with that. The most basic fact, and this is our first lesson, is that Jesus is the Christ, He is Savior, and He is Lord. And so we just use those four words as our outline. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? How is He the Messiah of God? He saves us, and as a result, He is our Lord. We moved on from that to talk about our response to that. The uh, faith we are to have and place in Him, and that in that we can find salvation. Our next lesson, and the lessons three and four, I think could have been in either order, uh, but we chose this. We talked about the great commandments for those now freed of sin and those living toward God. What are the first things to do? Well, it's to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second commandment, like unto it, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we now have a new world uh, view. We look in a different way at that uh, which is around us, looking differently toward God and looking differently toward each other. We also saw in our fourth lesson then that the Lord added the, those saved ones together. He added to their number such as were being saved. We studied from Acts chapter 2 about how there was a fellowship of believers, a communion of the saints. And we saw in Acts 2 the the worship that they engaged in. And it was the same as we do now. We have our uh, five acts that we do here uh, each Lord's Day as we sanctify uh, this day as we come on the Lord's Day uh, to commemorate Him. And also, they had a daily part from house to house. And we saw how they were together and they cared for one another. And then last time, we looked at the faithful and holy life. Then that these people together were to encourage one another in, encouraging one another to love and good deeds and uh, living a life uh, that is sanctified or holy. Uh, From Hebrews, we saw there is a sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Of course, even in that passage, it's not just our relation to the Lord. It also said there to pursue peace with all men. And so uh, our life with others and our life together, those are our next topics. Well, we would hope then to continue that faithful and holy life to the end. Uh, We even saw in that lesson from Revelation 2.10 to be faithful unto death and you'd receive the crown of life. Well, that gets to be where we are talking today. Then if we are faithful in that life, if we continue to trust in the promises of God, we come to the end of our time. The last hymn we just sang uh, spoke about uh, those who were uh, dead in Christ being resurrected or those who are alive at his coming. And in either case, there will be those uh, who the Lord will uh, raise. And for most of us, 
uh, as has been for those generations before. And depending upon how long the Lord decides to linger in his return, it may be for us that we will meet him through the burial chamber. Or it may be that he'll come immediately. We don't know either way, but we're prepared for either eventuality. Uh, But we do need to consider the fact that life is and always has been a terminal event. Uh, there is a, it's a one-way street. Time is a one-way ratchet. It goes but one direction and turns not back the other way. And so then we do have to consider in our life, and some because of circumstance or health scare or other things, they have considered that more deeply uh, than others, or some it weighs uh, more than others because of the passage of time. But eventually we must all confront the great crossing over, and we understand in Christianity is the only true uh, comfort in such a time of uh, need. Uh, I find it interesting that uh, the words that are said at that moment, the moment when, and this is from the uh, 1549 uh, funeral rites in the Book of Common Prayer, it gives this instruction, while the earth is cast upon the coffin, say these words. Ensure in certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we commend to Almighty God, our brethren, give the name. We commit his body to the ground, ashes to ashes, earth to earth, dust to dust. The Lord bless him and keep him. The Lord make his face shine upon him and be gracious unto him. The Lord lift up his countenance and upon him give him peace. Amen. We would certainly hope that at our passing, somebody can credibly say those words. There are some times when people have said those words over the grave. We don't find it credible. We find it quite incredible that they would say such. Although the grace of God is incredible and maybe there is is some hope. But it's interesting. Those are the uh, most common words said at that most tender of times. It's one of the few things that is shared entirely by Protestants and Catholic alike. Uh, the funeral rites uh, are the same uh, for both. I, I was looking to see it's like, how long have people been saying that exact form of words? And 1549 is the earliest printing I could find of that, although certainly they must not have sprung whole cloth in 1550. They are likely quite a bit older than that. But for a quarter of the Christian era, people have been saying those exact words at the passing of dear ones and loved ones. It's interesting, we, we get just so many times in... Uh, pictures and movies, expressions in popular culture, we get just a little piece of that to set the, you know, the, the ambiance of a funeral. And the part of ashes to ashes and dust to dust is um, nearly always the part that po- popular culture makes a, a snippet of. It's almost never the insurance, certain hope of the resurrection to life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so even when popular culture takes a part of this uh, funeral rite, and uses it, uh, they'll acknowledge death, but they won't acknowledge the life giver, uh, because that is a provoking thought at any time, and sometimes especially in cemeteries. But as I said, we would really hope that those words could be credibly said uh, over us and our body as it is committed to the ground. But even more importantly than if somebody were able to credibly say that for us would be the more important words renounced by Jesus and pronounced by God. We find this in Matthew 25. Jesus was teaching 
certain parables on the judgment there. And in one of the parables, it talks about a master who gave various servants talents. And he came back, and it says in Matthew 25, 19, he came and to, uh, with them to settle uh, accounts with them. And so the one who received the five talents came forward, Matthew 25, 20. And he said, Master, you're, you deliver me five talents here. Here are five more. And here are the great words. Master, he said, or he said, the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And to the other one who brought two talents, he said exactly the same thing. And again, the operative words here are well done, good and faithful servant and enter into the joy of the master. Again, Matthew 25 and 23. There's another parable or picture of judgment right after that. That one of the sheep and the goats. And there are a set of different words, but equivalent words on that occasion. So those who are separated to the right uh, with the sheep, Matthew 25, 33, the sheep on the right, the goats on the left, then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so thus enters uh, these people into uh, the great afterlife, the great blessing of God, which he has prepared from the beginning. And I, I think it's interesting, he says, it's been prepared for that long. Normally, the longer you've been preparing for a thing, the more spectacular it ends up being, right? If I invite you over for lunch and I say, hey, Doug, come on over to lunch. I've been preparing for five, ten minutes. Why are you laughing, Doug? You're still getting a free lunch out of the deal? Come on. But what's Doug expecting in my five-minute lunch? Well, there might be some sandwiches. Good news, Doug, we got mustard. There's no mayonnaise today, but we got mustard. We had that. He's not expecting a lot with a five-minute lunch, right? But what if I said, hey, Doug, come over for lunch? We were working all day yesterday on this. Well, he's expecting a little better than a you know, limited condiment sandwich, isn't he? He's expecting a little better. What if we've been preparing for this for a few days? All right, now this is where the brisket has had time to be made, right? The fatted calf portion has been prepared. Well, what if, though, you've been preparing your lifetime for a thing? Or here's the thing God has been preparing for all the lifetimes of everybody. How good is that going to be? Everything here is going to be ready. And so, in considering the reality here and meaning of the resurrection for us and the rewards of the afterlife, the thing that rights wrongs, the thing that gives proper reward, uh, we need to consider in the resurrection the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Our hope in the resurrection is based firmly and only on the reality of his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says this, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you receive, in which you stand, by which you're saved. Well, there's an important thing. If I stand and am in, by God and before God and am saved toward God by a thing, it, it's probably important. If, though... You hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. That Christ died for sins according to the scripture. 
He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, so don't expect this to keep on going. There's a last. There's a last guy in the train. This is the caboose of the appearances to prove the resurrection. Last of all, as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me. He said, Paul said, I'm so out of order here. I'm like, I'm, I'm like one untimely born. You could translate that and it has the same idea in Greek as a stillborn. Paul said, I was like, I was like a stillborn. I was, I'm told that this is not normal. Although if Jesus appearing to as many people as claim, uh, then Paul was just the first of a whole new class. Uh, not a stillborn, not a, not, uh, um, uh, you know, like a, a failed pregnancy, a, a failed delivery. But uh, anyway, the last of all, to one just totally out of sorts and out of order was me, uh, but by his great grace, he did. And so here is the the first order of things. Here is the important things. Here is what the scripture said, that Jesus would die for sin and that Jesus would go through all those sufferings, but for a purpose, again, to secure our salvation. It was done intentionally and purposely. Read Isaiah. Read the suffering servant uh, things. He he took the stroke that was due, right? Uh, that which should have fallen on the people uh, fell upon him. He was crushed because of our transgression. By his stripes, uh, we are healed. Peter would quote that in First Peter 2 as well. And so by that planned act of God, by the death of the Prince of Life, as we've been studying from Acts 3 in our Wednesday night Bible study, salvation is brought. And so our salvation rests fully on what Christ did. As it says in Acts 4, let this be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus, this of the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man, the man of Acts 3, the man at the beautiful gate, this man now stands before you in good health. The stone which was rejected by you, the builders, became the cornerstone. There's salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. And so this man, this is the only one, the one you rejected, but the one that God raised, you killed him, God raised him, he's the prince of life, he is the cornerstone and the foundation of everything, he brings salvation. If Christ is not raised, then I think the Jews were right. Correct? That Jesus wasn't who he claimed. Right? But he was who he claimed. And the resurrection proved it, and the apostles preached it. So in 1 Corinthians 15, back to there, now if Christ is preached as having been raised from the dead, how then do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Good question to ask in all of the theological schools of our land. Right? It's only, you know, outcast, déclassé, um, uh, uh, seminaries uh, of uh, radical fundamentalists, it seems, that still believe that. Uh, it, it seems in our society, nobody respectable believes that. And this has crept even into the churches the people just aren't quite sure about that resurrection thing. Maybe it's symbolic. Maybe it's a good story of rebirth and renewal. 
Uh, that's preached every Easter all over the place. But no, it is an actual resurrection. If there's no resurrection from the dead, that not even Christ has been raised. That's verse 13. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain. Well, that's one reason why people don't listen to preachers very long who don't believe in the resurrection. They're preaching a vain message. Why would you want to go hear a vain message? I get enough trouble getting y'all to come and trying to give you the book. Imagine if I didn't follow the book. I don't think, I don't know how long y'all last. Bob likes me. He may hold on the longest, but no, no, if you love the Lord, you're, you're out of there. No matter how much you like the guy. If Christ is not raised, the preaching is vain. Well, vain preaching, it's fruitless. Your faith is vain. A resurrectionless faith is vain. Moreover, we've been found to be false witnesses of God. You're a liar in God's name. You've been going around saying God did stuff he didn't do. Because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ. Whom he didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sin. Then those who fall asleep in Christ have perished. And we who hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men to be most pitied. King James says most miserable. That's the thing. If you go all in on this uh, resurrection stuff, you go all in on this Christ stuff and it's wrong, man, you, what a waste. And that's why sometimes people don't go all in on this Christ stuff. Because they think, well, it might be wrong. Or they think, well, you know, it might might not be. There might be the... And so maybe... What if I hedge my bets? How about some of that Christ stuff and some of this world stuff, right? And so people don't go all in on Christ because they're not fully convinced. We need to be so all in on Christ that what Paul said would be true of us, that if Christ is not raised, then your life was just a waste because we've invested our whole life in Christ. We put our whole heart and our whole trust there it's affected how we live. It's affected how we've invested. It's infected. Uh, it, it's been in everything. Everything has been affected. Everything has been Christ made and Christ ordered. And if there is no Christ, then. But people hedge their bets. So, well, some of the world. Because you know, if, that, if that Christ thing doesn't work out, I need a landing place, you know. I need I need a backup plan. No. The backup plan is Christ, just like the first plan. The first plan is Christ, and the backup plan is Christ. And seeking the kingdom first and provide, hoping that God provide, like he promised, all these things to those who seek it, well, that's the backup plan. It's also the first plan. It's the only plan. So it's all secured, all the blessings and all the forgiveness and the fullness of salvation is secured in the resurrection. That's why Peter would say in that passage famously where he says baptism now saves you. Then he qualifies it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not, uh, but it's an appeal to God of a good conscience. But then he gets back to the main topic and he says it's through the resurrection of Jesus. We baptize because Jesus was raised. That's the only reason baptism means anything. Otherwise, it's, it's a few minutes in the, in the pool. Now, you know, a few minutes in the pool might be pleasant otherwise. But we don't do it for that. We do it as a profession of Jesus Christ. We do it in repentance in his name. We do it in the power of the resurrection. And that's why it's effective. So then because of this, we have a living and helpful Savior. 
Hebrews 7, it says Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, those of the Old Testament, he says, those existed in large numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds the priesthood permanently. Hence, he's able to save forever those who draw near to him, since he always lives to make intercession for the saints. So, our living, helpful Savior, our interceder, our our mediator, our, our helper, he is there to always help. He ever lives to make intercession. What if he's not? He saves forever. You know, how is it that this system, after 2,000-ish, not quite yet, but we're getting there, 2,000-ish years still has power? How is it still effective after 2,000 years? Think of all the things 2,000 years ago that were powerful and effective systems. The Romans had a good, pretty good, powerful and effective system. You can go see pieces of it in the museums. Right? Who had a powerful and effective system two millennia ago that's still working? Only the church. And actually, a whole bunch of that Roman stuff wouldn't have been preserved if it weren't for the Roman Catholic Church. They became the greatest museum of paganism there ever was because they preserved so much of that. Some of it they maybe shouldn't have, obviously, but no, it's powerful because he ever lives. And two millennia from now, if the Lord delays his return, if we get to the fourth millennia of Christianity to an end, as we're now coming to a second millennium of Christianity to an end, in 2,000 more years, what would we expect of the American system? The, the American capitalistic, the, the Western English-dominated <clears throat> capitalistic liberal democracy system that has controlled the world for the last couple hundred years and really done great, great things with it, also spread perversion pretty effectively as well. But what would we expect of that system to remain in two millennia? If we could time travel to two millennia in the future and the world is still here, what would we expect to find that looks something like today? I think the only thing would be the people gathered in the way of the book. The people gathered in Christ's name will still be teaching the same things and singing the same psalms, probably not these hymns, but but some of the same psalms, and they'll be reading and teaching the same lessons and telling people avoid the world and follow Christ. In two millennia, if the world continues, I am confident that will happen because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But Satan will have taken everything else down. And there'll be new people. Uh, new, new boundaries of habitations, new times and epochs. But the church and the church alone will remain because it is the one thing that can't be shaken because it's based on the one ever-living one. Nothing else is. Everything that appears so important and so so permanent and so powerful is temporary and transitory, especially in light of the ever-living Savior. And so... He's always there to help. First John 2, little children, I write these things that you may not sin. If you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And in his resurrection is the promise that he gave to return. As he ascended, the angels told the Galileans, the apostles, he'll come back in the same way. He said, I'll be with you. But he also said, I'm coming back for you. 
Now, we won't read it because our time is going, but First Thessalonians 4 ends with this one where it says, Brethren, comfort one another with these words. It is a comforting thought to think he'll return, and the promise of his return is that he conquered death already. He doesn't have to conquer death to come back. He's already conquered death, then he left willingly, and he promised to come back. And the one with that power is one who we can trust. And we have already today proclaimed that. The very fact that we assemble in his name on his day does proclaim that. But then we had a special memorial feast to do that. It is not just a memorial. It's a memorial and proclamation. Right? How long are we keeping this feast? Until he returns. Oh, what if the clock runs out on me? Well, then the next generation will keep it till he returns. And what about if the clock runs out on the next generation? Just as it's been for many generations to get to us today. Right? We are not the first link in the chain, the middle link in the chain. We may be at either end of the chain. We don't know. We're, but we are linking the chain of people keeping the memorial until he comes. And so we looked back, right? We looked back to his death. We also should have looked around in fellowship to see who we're with and one another in common belief and sharing in this, right? So we looked back. We looked around. Did we look up? We looked up to heaven. Did we look within? Yes, we should have looked within, right? Examine ourselves. But with all these other looking, what's one of the lookings we do? We're looking forward. So we're looking back. We're looking forward. We're looking up. We're looking down. We're looking around. And then that's when somebody says, no, bow your head. Stop it. No, but I'm supposed to be looking around at all these things. I do look around, right? We looked around at all these things. And we are comforted that he will return. And we proclaim that he will return. So 1 Corinthians 15. So in the resurrection of the dead, it's sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable one. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there'll be a spiritual body. How do I know that? Because Jesus, His natural body, was killed. But by the power of an indestructible life, He came back. And what was His body like after He came back? I don't know the full of it, but at times it looked like a lot like what He had. And the apostles recognized Him, but other times they didn't recognize Him. He had power that others don't have. He's the first fruit of our resurrection. There's a lot of things you can know about a first fruit. But one thing you know about the first fruit, the first fruit looks like the other fruit that's coming. Right? The first fruits of the banana look like bananas. What's the rest of it? It's all bananas. Right? Hold on. That may not be. Man, right? some congregations. All right. <laughs> but it, it might be bananas. It, it might be carrots. It might be pecans, whatever. You know, it had to be pecans at least once. But the first fruits look like what's coming. He came back with a body that could go back to heaven. We're going to be given a body like that that can go to be in heaven, a glorified body. And so what is the afterlife? I'm not going to talk a lot about the details of heaven. I want to talk about it briefly in the terms of glorification. A lot of these verses we'll use quickly. Some of them we know or recognize. 
We think about the glory that's inherent in our Father. Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who's the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the King of glory. Selah. The King of glory. And He has made Himself known and manifest to us. He came in the form of a man. He came as man. The offspring, as we say in the famous Christmas carol, offspring of a virgin's womb. Here came Jesus. He briefly showed that glory. He exercised His great and glorious power. The transfiguration. Matthew 17 is one of the most obvious cases. He was transfigured before them on that high mountain. His face shone like the sun. His garments became white as light. This is the glory of God. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, Revelation 4, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things because of you. They exist that were created. Jude said, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times and forevermore. And so here is the one of glory, the great God of glory. And the thing about God's glory, which is hard for us to approach a sinful man, God still showed us that glory. He did show it to all the world, partly in creation. The heavens tell of the glory of God. Their expanse declares the work of His hands. There's a glory of God seen in nature and creation. That's why Paul says, they're without excuse in Romans 1. We know there must be a glorious Creator God. I don't know how much else you can know, but Paul says you can know that. Then we run into people go, I don't think there's a God out there. I don't see any reason or evidence for that. Dude, go outside, right? I mean, you sit in front of a big flat screen TV, you realize that, you know, somebody made that, right? Somebody made that big flat screen TV that you're watching all day long. That did not appear in your living room. But so, yeah, somebody made that and somebody shipped that. Yet somehow you go outside and you see the stars, you see the mountains, uh, you see the plains, you, you see self-growing food sprouting out of the ground. You see meat walking by on the hoof and go, I don't know how any of that got here. Blinded. Blinded in unbelief. Like it says in Psalm uh, 115, those who worship idols will be like them. People worship at stupidity and they become stupid. They just are. And it's obvious. But God's glory is shown. Just go outside and look. And then Habakkuk 2, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And there it's not talking about the creative glory of God, but the working glory of God shown through His Word. Through His Word, the glory of God's gone everywhere. And there we get the particulars. So in creation, we see the mighty Creator God. But in His Word, we have that explained to know the particulars of who He is. And that glory of God, He shares with His people and He brings them along in it. Because if we were not lifted up to be God's people, if we were not called by Him to the glory of His name, by His grace and wisdom, where would we remain? In the stupidity and ignorance of idolatry. Right? 
those guys who could build the Parthenon, Paul said it was inside of that building in Athens, the times of ignorance got overlooked. He's now calling you to repent. They could build those beautiful buildings and make democracy, but they were ignorant. Can you be a person who has democracy and pretty buildings and high tech and be as ignorant as all get out morally? Well, they could then and were proving the thing again now. From this ignorance, God calls us to his own power and glory. Of Israel, it says, Isaiah 49, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. And we think about all through the Old Testament and the beginning parts of the New and the Gospel, how many times in Israel was the glory of God shown. His glory in the temple, His glory in His Word, His glory in the miracles, His glory in His faithful people, the glory in the promises. Psalm 149, the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let the godly ones exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Here are people who, it talks about the afflicted ones. Here are people who seems to be, they're so sick they can't get out of bed. And yet they honor God in their singing. He takes pleasure in them. And so then we think about the glory in the Messiah that God sent to a sick and dying nation. And his miracles and his resurrection and his teaching of the gospel And part of the gospel is what? Go take this to everybody. Call everybody through this word. And what is the end of it? Glory for them too. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. See, his son's glorious. He calls us to be like the son and in the son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called... And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. God's calling ends in glorification because God will share his glory. You know, God is jealous of his glory when the pagans try to presume upon it. God is jealous of his glory when people try to portray it in idolatry. You think about how angry Moses and the Lord both were with that golden calf thing in the wilderness. Now, God is jealous of his glory. But for those who honor God, for those who are his children who receive his promises and hear his word, he's not jealous of his glory with them. He shares and promises to share his glory with them. Romans 8, if children heirs also, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. We can be in the glory of Christ, glorified with Christ. Romans 9.22, a little farther on. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not only from among the Jews, but from also among the Gentiles. For those in the gospel, though wrath and vengeance would justly be theirs because 
Who is in the gospel without being a sinner first? Right? Justice would be that all the saints in their sin would have been condemned, just like all the sinners, because saints and sinners all start in the same place as those who've fallen short of God's glory. But, though he could have made that demonstration of wrath and power known, he made another demonstration, a demonstration of mercy, a demonstration of patience, a demonstration of kindness, and he makes these folks who follow him a demonstration of glory that they may share in his glory forevermore. Let us be among those who share in God's glory forevermore. The particulars about what heaven will be and how much we'll know and who will know and all that. If you're in the glory of God, it's covered. It's good. Now that might be a study for another time. It might be a Bible study you wish to engage in and to study. There's some things there to look at. But if you're in the glory of God, if God's glory is demonstrated upon you, it will be well. And there's no need to worry about any particular. In Colossians 3, when Christ, who is our life. See, that's the key there. Your life is fully in Christ. You've invested in Christ. you put into this Christ thing full and wholeheartedly. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. And what will you be like? You'll be like Him. Philippians 3, He will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He Himself has even to subject all things to Himself. We'll be in conformity with the body of His glory. We saw a hint of that body of glory after the resurrection. The Jesus after the resurrection was more than He was before, wasn't He? In body. He was. And how much more will we be? We'll be like that. In all of those things. And there's so many more dimensions that we don't yet know. But we have this as a concluding verse and a hope. Verse John 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. That we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are now children of God. It has not yet appeared what we will be. Well, we're going to be like Christ, but that hasn't fully been revealed yet. He says, we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. Because we'll see him just as he is. We will one day be made to be like Christ. How glorious is Christ now? It tells us we're going to be made like that. That's the hope. That's why it's the church glorified, right? The church militant, the church triumphant, the church glorified. It's for those who have that faith in Christ. This is all based on the resurrection. The resurrection is the linchpin to the whole thing. This is what God offers as the proof. God himself says this is the proof. Romans 1.4 He was proven to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection of Christ. This is the evidence the apostles cite in Acts 2 and Acts 4, Acts 7, Acts 13 and over, Acts 17 to the pagans. This is the powerful proof the apostles appeal to. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If this were wrong on this, we'd lie about what God did. But no, God did it. And so in that fact of the resurrection is our hope of salvation and glorification. And so the resurrection and the afterlife are ours by the promise of God. Because he said he'll raise us to glory just as he raised Jesus. 
So with that, we have that to look forward to. That faithful and holy life that we talked about last time, sometimes that has some difficulties. I think this will make it worth it. I think this is such a reward and such a gift of his grace that we think, wow, what, whatever of sanctification we are to pursue here, wow, that, that pales into what we have been promised. But God is patient with us even as we stumble, even as we are weak, even though he's promised us, we don't yet see it. So we have to see it through the eye of faith. The world tries to tell you, you, you you're seeing things that aren't there. And we're saying, no, we see things that he said, so they are there. But in neither case do we see them yet. But do we trust enough in what he says over what the world says to follow? With that, we offer you the lesson in close. Do you need to come confessing Christ? Do you need to come to the one who's been raised? And because of that, he'll be the judge. But he'll be a merciful judge to those who follow him and come to him now. If you need to come to him or come back, we offer the invitations we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.